chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jewish leaders. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish anyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. In 2007, Randy Pausch, a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He had seven large tumors in his liver. His doctor told him that he had three months of good health left. He was 49 years old. His university had an ongoing lecture series where they challenged professors to imagine that if they only had one lecture to give, 
what would it be? And they had this lecture series. They called it the last lecture. And they invited Randy, Dr. Dr. Pausch, to give what is no longer a hypothetical last lecture, but in reality, likely the last lecture he would be able to give to his students and his colleagues. It typically was an exercise in trying to figure out what were the most important things. What was something that, if you only had one more time to speak, what would you say? And it was no longer a theoretical exercise. This was the real deal. So for an hour and 15 minutes, he lectured to an auditorium filled with his colleagues about his childhood dreams, how he had come about accomplishing them or not accomplishing them, how he had enabled the dreams of others and the lessons he had learned in the process. His lecture was recorded and placed on YouTube, where it received over 20 million views. His lecture was expanded into a book, which was a New York Times bestseller, The Last Lecture. He then spent the last three months of his life um, essentially using that fame to give the lessons of that particular lecture. He was on Oprah and other places. It was a, a wonderful time for both he and his family. Now, if you were to watch his lecture or read his book, it was filled with wisdom, but not wisdom that you have never heard before. It was not something radically new. It was not something radically different. What gave it its power? What gave it its power was the venue. It was actually last words. It was a farewell speech. It was a last, if you would, a last will and testament. It, was, it wasn't the wisdom that he provided. It was the fact that it was what he had distilled down after a lifetime. It's the reason why that stands out. It's the reason why it caught the imagination, even though it was pedestrian wisdom. I, at, I mean, I don't want to diminish it, but it was the fact that this had made it through and filtered through a lifetime that made it have the weight that it had. Now, here's the thing. It kind of captured the imagination of our culture and you might have even heard this. You, how many of you have heard of the last lecture, even the book? You, you might have even heard about this. There's a reason why it captured the imagination of our culture. One of the reasons why is we don't do this very well in our own culture. We take our dying and we, put them, we move them away from family. We move them into hospitals. A lot of people don't necessarily see their last days in their home. Some people do. Some people don't because of medical um, uh, advancements that people are actually able to stay alive much longer than they're able to communicate. But in truth, this type of speech, a farewell speech, was actually very common in the Jewish world. Very common in the Jewish world. The Romans liked to use last will and testaments. They wrote stuff down. But in the Jewish world, the idea of a last speech, a farewell speech, a last will and testament that was given verbally, orally, was something that was common in the ancient world. The patriarchs all did it. Abraham did it. Jacob did it. Isaac did it. Joseph did it. We find one in 1 Samuel. From Samuel, he did it. 
extra canonical literature. There's, there's books like the Testament of Moses that records his farewell speech or his apparent farewell speeches, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. I, and the reason why I know this is because this played a big role in my own doctoral dissertation is the idea of a last speech, a farewell speech. And what we have here from the Apostle Paul is something akin to what we would call a farewell speech. And it was understood, as you might have guessed, that when someone gives a farewell speech or a deathbed speech, that there is a weight to those words. There's something about those words spoken on that occasion at that time that carry with them a weight about them. So much so, do you guys remember the story of, of Jacob and Esau? Isaac is giving the farewell blessings and Jacob tricks Isaac, uh, Jacob tricks Esau and he, and he sends him out. He's hunting game and Jacob comes in and he steals the blessing of Isaac. Do you guys remember the story? And when, when Esau comes in, he's all, bless me. And, and so Jacob gets the blessing of the firstborn, even though he's not the firstborn. And then when Esau comes in, he says, bless me too, bless me too. And Isaac's like, I can't, it's been done. Like there's something about the weight of those words spoken at a farewell occasion or a last, a last word, a deathbed speech that has some kind of weight and irrevocability about it that's a little mysterious. And here we have an example, though Paul is probably not giving a deathbed speech, he lives for another I mean, at least another 10 years after this. I don't want to, no spoiler alerts here. But in the moment, obviously, there's, there's great concern about what he's doing and where he's going and what he's going into. But there are eight more chapters of the book of Acts. So this is not a deathbed speech, but it is a farewell speech. And these sorts of speeches have always fascinated me. They're given with the end in sight, like the last lecture. They're given with the end in sight. They're full of wisdom of the years. And the blessings and instructions that are typically given have a significant weight to them. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this speech that Paul gives, this farewell speech that has the weight of it. And all of you guys know this kind of weight if you've ever been to a retirement party and somebody gives their retirement speech after years. Has anybody been to something like that? Or maybe you've had a beloved pastor or a beloved leader that has, that has been through and is now moving on to something else and they give a last sermon or a last speech or a last address. There's something weighty that goes with that. Perhaps you've even left a ministry. We have people in here that have, that have been in ministry. You, as you leave a ministry, you're able to give and impart a last word. And it's, it's tied to emotion, it's tied to, there's, there's a, a great sense of velocity about it because of the venue in which it's happening, usually well-written and thoughtful. And while this is a true farewell speech, it's, again, Paul is saying, look at Acts 20, he says, behold, now I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. He, we don't know, we just know all he's saying is that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await. It's not necessarily that Paul's going to his death. But Luke is going to make it clear by using this speech at this point in the book of Acts that there is a transition that is happening with the ministry of Paul and with the gospel. Paul is completing a 15-year run 
a 15-year ministry that has been marked by free travel, guided by the Holy Spirit, certainly, but if Paul wanted to go somewhere, he was generally able to go there. And as he went to different cities, he would plant churches, he would preach the gospel, he would go to the synagogue, then he would go to the agora, the marketplace, he would preach the gospel, and those who believed, he would set up a house church, a new community, an alternative synagogue, if you will. And that was 15 years of his life. He did it on the island of Cyprus. He did it in middle Turkey. He did it in western Turkey like Ephesus and the seven churches. He did it in northern Greece, Macedonia like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. He did it in southern Greece, Athens. He did it in Corinth. 15 years of that kind of ministry. And Luke is making it clear that that run is now over. Paul will not be able to travel wherever he wants to go. He will be confined, whether it's in a prison cell or under house arrest, whether it's going to be in the city of Caesarea in Israel, or whether it's going to be in the city of Rome. He will be now in a season of chains. Whether that's metaphorical or literal, it is a new season, and this is the end. I think sometimes when we read the book of Acts, we're like, oh no, it's, it's just the Apostle Paul. And we have to understand that the Apostle Paul and Luke is trying to let us know that this, whatever Paul was doing during this time, that was a great run. But that's over now. Now, true to form, because the book of Acts is not about Peter or it's not about Paul, what's it about? It's about the gospel. You will be my witnesses. You will testify about me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that the gospel still needs to go to the ends of the earth. And Paul will actually make a great point in the book of Philippians that even though I'm in chains, what? That the gospel is still going out. It's become well known throughout the whole palace guard why I'm in chains. Like, it's funny because, like, Paul used to go out and find people. Now he has people chained to him. Like, can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul? You're like, you're going to get an earful, right? Thank you very much. It's a captive audience, and I'm not talking about me, right? The, whoever's chained to me, they're going to hear about the gospel. You can, you can imagine the Roman guards that are chained to him. Like, oh, I've, I drew, who are you guarding today? I'm guarding Paul. Oh, you know, and I, I hear this guy just talks your ear off, and maybe another guard would say, look, I'll take your spot. That guy changed my life. That guy told me something that changed my life. I'll take another run with, the, with him. You think about, the gospel is not going to be in chains, but Paul will. And so we come to a point where Paul now is at the point where he's leaving a place that he's been for three years of ministry where he's planted, where he has shed tears, where he has done work, and now he's coming to the end of that time in Ephesus, but also that season now. And I think it deserves our attention to ask the question, what is he, what does he say? What are these weighty words? Can we feel the weight of what the Apostle Paul is saying as we hear this? Are you guys with me? This is not, again, this is not just another passage. Like, it's like, well, well we're, in, we're in Acts chapter 20. That's, this is the next one. There's, there's texture to this book. 
And this is a moment of sobriety. This is a moment of weight. This is a moment of emotion. This is a moment of thinking back and looking forward, but the past is not going to be like the future. Freedom is going to be replaced by chains. What is on the Apostle Paul's mind and how does Luke tell us? So let's take a look. Let's take a look and see what the Lord has for us today. So let's open up Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 18. It says, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. By the way, he's gone. He he actually doesn't go to the city of Ephesus. He actually goes about 30 miles away because he doesn't want to go. Remember, we talked last time about how he stays He's leaving Corinth when it's Passover, and he wants to make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost. He's got 50 days to make it there. And he's already spent like seven, he's already spent like 12 days just trying to get to, to Troas, which is northern Turkey, but he's got to make it all the way down. So he doesn't go to this place where he knows if I land in Ephesus, I might have, I might have friends, but I also might have enemies that might slow me down. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to skirt the coast and I'm going to go about 30 miles south, and I'll call for the elders from the church to come meet me. You could almost hear him say, it'll be easier that way to say goodbye. And so he does. He says to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the various plots of the Jewish leaders. When Paul says, reflects on this last farewell, that mode of emotion when he came that of humility. I think as someone who, you know, you might know someone who is a humble person, a humble man or a humble woman. When Paul talks about humility, what he's talking about is he actually was in a bit of a humiliated stance in a sense and that there's a couple of reasons why we remember when we talked about apollos and and paul they had these different kind of modes of ministry apollos was this well-spoken he's the white toga guy but paul is the leather worker working with his hands he's the tradesman paul comes into town not as this highfalutin jewish rabbi but as a tradesman with the stains on his hands of working with leather with the tools of the trade. He came to them in humility as a tradesman is what is going to be his point in this, that he came as a tradesman. That He also says, when I came, I was serving the Lord. And if you look at that, that word serving there, and if you take notes, that word serving is, 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 the, is the verbal form of slave. I was slaving for the Lord. You could say, I was diakoneo, I was, I was deaconing for the Lord, that's serving. But this word is dulao, which is, I was slaving for the Lord. That I am a slave, that Paul sees himself, though he could see himself as this Jerusalem-trained rabbi, this great order, I'm a mere tradesman. Though I have these credentials, I will choose to self-empty myself, and I will be a slave. And the reason why Paul does this, does anybody know the reason why Paul does this? This is what Jesus does. Paul actually says so in Philippians chapter 2, right? He says, though he was in the very form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself 
He took the form of a servant. And if Jesus, who being in the form of God, will take the form of a servant, Paul says, I will take the form of a servant. So Paul comes in humility. And the Ephesians would have said, they, they would have said, yeah, you did. They might have even chuckled a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. You came humiliated. We saw the riots. We saw the trials, the tribulations. Like, yeah, there was shame. Like, like there was real shame involved in what you did, but you were faithful in that. Humility. In Acts 20, at the end of this, he says, I coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Again, Paul is saying, I did not come white-collar, I came blue-collar. And I came working hard to support myself and to support the people with me. That my team did not want anyone to think that the gospel cost money. It's free. And I came humbly in that way. It also says, I came and I endured trials. The Ephesian elders would remember the riot of the silversmiths, as well as the stories of the plots against him by his fellow countrymen. I was tallying these up this week. There were plots against, against Paul by his Jewish countrymen in various places on his journeys, like Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. There were plots against him. Even, even as he's speaking this, there's plots against him. So he came in humility. But just because Paul came in humility, as we think about what he would have looked like as he came into town, even though he came in humility, he did not cut a meek form. He did not cut a meek profile as a teacher. He says twice in this, I did not shrink back. I might have come in humility, but I did not shrink back. Look at 2020. Do we have to say that? Look at 2020. All right, forget it. Thank, yeah, let's not look at 20. Let's look at Acts 20, verse 20. He says, how I did not shrink back, or did I not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Look again, he uses the same verb in verse 27. Look at verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, this word shrink back, he, he's, I, I didn't shrink back. The word shrink back implies being timid. Or sometimes if you have the New, uh, New International Version, it'll say, I was not silent about. And this implies that for the Apostle Paul, if there was something sticky or difficult, Paul addressed it. He went head on into it. Now, some people... Um, say the Apostle Paul must have been blunt. He just said whatever was on his mind. And, you're, and, you're, and some of you guys are like, yeah, and I take that as a motto for my own life. Like, I'm just never going to filter anything on my mind. That's not what Paul does here. He says he, he didn't shrink back. And certainly Paul had a bluntness to him. But it doesn't mean that he was unnecessarily rash or impulsive or rushing in. He says he didn't shrink back from saying, what was profitable 
We're in shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Now, that's a far cry from someone saying, look, I'm not a wilting flower. I'm not going to shrink back from saying anything. You should shrink back from saying some things. You should have a filter. But in terms of what is profitable, you should not shrink back. From the whole counsel of God, you should not shrink back. It doesn't mean that Paul was abrasive. It means that Paul was confident about what he was teaching, was encouraging, uplifting, inspiring, challenging, but not unnecessarily abrasive. It does not take discipline or courage to simply always say what is on your mind. It does take courage to consistently say what is profitable. The whole counsel of God. So Paul came in humility, but he did not cut a meek form in the church. He had a a presence about him. He was not just uh, he, was, he was not timid in what he taught or who he taught. Look at verse 20 again. He says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he does, he does two things there. He says, he talks about, I, I, I did this in public and house to house, and I did it both to Jews and to Greeks. And this, the idea behind this is, not only was he a public figure, but whatever he taught in public, that he also taught in more intimate settings, in houses, he would teach as well. So the idea is that whatever, whether public or private, I was teaching. And it wasn't just to one type of person or one demographic of people. Jews and Greeks, both. Paul's way of saying that he has discharged his teaching to every person and in every setting. I think sometimes we see people, we see ministries, right, that they focus on a certain demographic, and that's not necessarily bad or wrong. There are certain ministries that that aim at a certain demographic. But sometimes when you see people and you come across people in ministry and you realize this person can talk to anybody. I have a friend, his name's Craig Cooper. Craig Cooper is a pastor at um, Foothills Church in Rancho Santa Margarita. It's an EV free free church, if that puts anybody's heart at ease. Um, But but, um, Pastor Cooper, Craig, my friend, um, we used to serve together at at a church, and my office was right across from his office. And we had windows along our office doors, and I could see into his office from my desk. I could see into his office. I couldn't see everything, but I could see he had his desk, And then across from his desk, he had a chair. And in my office, I could see straight into who who was in that chair. Now, Craig was our family pastor. He was our children's pastor. He was a youth pastor. Um, But he he worked with children. He worked with adults. He worked with young adults, volunteers, professionals. Craig, I would look across from my desk into that chair, and day to day, it would be anybody. It was like looking at the DMV one person at a time, right? Anybody could be sitting across in that chair. And every day I'd come in and a different person would be in that chair. There would be a student, there'd be a fifth grader, there would be a high schooler, there would be an intern, a college student. 
There would be an adult, there would be a mom, there would be a dad, there would be a a professional, someone blue-collar, white-collar, lawyer, accountant, whoever it was, they would sit in that chair, and I knew that they were hearing whatever was profitable from God's Word going straight to them. I always say about Craig, who's a friend, I I always say that he, whatever it is that makes someone a pastor, he's got it. Because anybody, I could be sitting in that chair, or homeless guy Bill, we had this homeless guy Bill who would always come by, and he would be sitting in Craig's office. The Apostle Paul said, look, it didn't matter who it was, Jew, Greek, public, private. I did not shrink back from giving anything profitable to those people. Craig's been a model for me. I feel like for me, if I'm doing a good job as a pastor, then any person on the face of the planet could sit across the table from me and I could share a cup of coffee with them. If ever I'm at a point where I, there's someone that I'm like, I can't do it, then I know that I need to go back and I need to get on my knees and ask God to give me the heart of a pastor because that's what pastors do. Anybody, anybody. And I think that's, the, you think about the heart of God, you walk through those doors, you're a one or a ten, God is opening his arms, that is the heart of of the Father. That's the heart of my friend Craig Cooper. That's the heart that I would aspire to. That's the heart of the Apostle Paul. Jew, Greek, public, private, wherever, whenever, whoever, I will not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God and whatever is profitable. Because of the open nature of Paul's invitation to all types and his forthrightness, He can say with a clear conscience, look at verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all. Because he had an open heart to whoever, to whoever would walk into his shop, would walk into the synagogue, to whoever walked in. And because he did not shrink back from declaring the good news, He could say with confidence, there is no one that I have not discharged this ministry to. I I have a clear conscience. I am innocent of the blood of any person here. Now, that takes some discipline, right? That takes some discipline to say that with confidence. And it seems clear that Paul had that confidence. So Paul, as he recounts his own ministry, as he recounts his own ministry, I think these are some things as we think about our own ministries, as I think about my own ministry as a pastor, as you as a follower of Jesus, that we can think about, am I being forthright? Am I declaring what's profitable to other people? Am I open to anybody who walks through the door? Am I open to having those conversations? Am I innocent of the blood of the city of Orange? It's a tall order, and I don't think I am right now, to be quite honest. I don't feel like I am. I feel like there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this city. I don't feel like I'd be innocent of the blood of the people that are within a one-mile radius of this church. I think we have some work to do. I know I do. 
And I want all of us, I want all of us to have a sense that Paul is laying some weight here. These are weighty words, right? And we need to feel the weight of them. Any person, any place, public, private, am I open to that? But Paul also has some words for the elders of this church. Maybe the words, the elders of our church, but certainly the elders of this church in Ephesus. And he says this in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. He says, pay attention to the flock as shepherds. Probably what Paul is referring here to is Ezekiel chapter 34, um, and it, which talks about essentially el- elders or shepherds and, and a flock and ravenous wolves. He says this in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves or, or ravenous wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then something haunting. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You know, ravenous wolves, wolves, wolves do well with inattentive shepherds. Or wolves do well with uninvested shepherds. If I'm not invested in the flock, why not lose one or two? Inattention or not, in, not an investment, or uh, if, if, if shepherds are um, uninterested, wolves do well. So he goes on to say, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, the way we've, we, I've treated this, this, his speech is um, I've treated it, I've dealt with the ends first. And if you've been following along in your Bible, you've been like, we're going here and then to the end and then here and then here. And what we've left out so far is what? The middle, the very middle, the very middle. And this is probably the, the main point that Paul is making. And so as we do this, and this is where I want to finish out this morning, because I think it has something for us as we think about the Apostle Paul. Obviously, there's a lot of things, and again, this is part of the deal of, of preaching is you put it out there and you let the Holy Spirit have things land where the Holy Spirit wants things to land. And so we trust that the Spirit is working, and if there's something that has hit so far and you're making notes, that there's something here. But this is probably what I would say what I want us to, to really focus on. In 2022, it says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This phrase I want us to focus on when Paul says, if only that I may finish my course. This sounds like the Apostle Paul, right? Doesn't it? 
First of all, in, in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about, you know, I, I don't want to count my own life or anything. I, I count everything as loss except for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That he doesn't want his own life. What he wants is Christ Jesus his Lord. But in 2 Timothy 4, 7, at the end of his life, this is what Paul says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. And here... About eight years earlier, Paul is saying, look, all I really want to do is finish the course. And he had finished 15 years of great ministry, free to travel. And though that season was coming to an end, a new season of ministry was coming, but it was going to be a season of imprisonment, of trial, of conflict, of chains, If only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus. And we're going to go to communion in just a second, but what I want you to reflect on is, have you thought about what your course is? Have you thought about, look, we're, we're all like, the first sermon that I preached here as your pastor was on, Ephesians, or sorry, on Hebrews chapter 12 which talks about this idea, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Some of you guys might even remember that. I I think I'm being ambitious by thinking that you remember a sermon from, but hey, hey, I can dream, right? All right? Okay, but this idea of the race that has been set before us, the course that has been set before us, like as followers of Jesus, We all share a course, like there's a course of faithfulness that has been set before us. We also, as as a follower of Jesus, that that as, as a member of the body here at Taft Avenue Community Church, there is a course that has been set before us. It's it's common to us. But there's also a course that has not been set before me or anyone else, but it's been set before you in your life. A course that that God has called you to, you and you alone. Actually, I should say this, that you and He get to go on. No one else. It's just you. And I don't know if you've thought about this. And some of you guys, some of you are here and you're, you're later in life and you're like, I am in the process of finishing my course. And that's awesome. We get to hear the wisdom and the weight of the words that you provide. Others of us that are here, we're in the middle of a course that God has put before us. The interesting thing about the course and the race that we run individually, I like the way Hebrews puts it because it's not the course, it's not the race that I have chosen. It's the race that has been set before you. Like you don't get to choose when you were born, what time of human history. That there's a certain race that we run here in the city of Orange, in the 21st century, in COVID-19, right? There is a race that has been set before us corporately, but there's also a course, a race course that has been set before you. And I think it deserves some reflection on our part to ask, and maybe you're at the beginning of your race. Maybe you've got a lot of life ahead of you and you're like, I'm still trying to figure out what the course looks like. If you're at the end of the course, 
You know what the course looks like. If you're in the middle of the course, you have a pretty good idea about what it's going to be. What? I don't know a little bit. But if you're at the beginning, you don't entirely know what it's going to be. But it deserves reflection to ask, what is the course? Not just the course. What is my course? The Apostle Paul says, all I want to do is finish my course. What do you need to finish your course? What kind of companionship do you need to finish your course? How does Jesus move in you, the Holy Spirit, to finish your course? I don't know what your course is. Some of you I do. Some of you I've talked to. We've talked about ministry and life. I don't know what your course is. But I do know that we do it with surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And I do know that we throw off everything that hinders. And I know that we run it with perseverance and we run it with each other. Even if it is my course, I still run it with my brothers and sisters. I love that the Apostle Paul says that if only I can finish my course. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. We're going to, do, we're going to have, um, participate in the Lord's Supper together. And um, again, we're going to, um, you're, going to, you're going to come up and uh, we're, we'll play some music. And um, you'll have time. There's no rush. Um, but to come up to grab the two cups. There's two cups in there. The bread's in the bottom one. The juice is in the top one. To grab it, take it back to your seat. We'll have some time for reflection. But what, what I'd really like you to, to think about is simply this idea to hear these weighty words of the Apostle Paul and to say, well, first of all, just to say, what, what is landing? Where is the Holy Spirit at in, this, in these weighty words? What is, what is he bringing home to me? But also just to ask the question, what is my course? What's the ministry that God has called me to? Where am I at on that course? And how do I finish that course well.